Hear the word of the Lord from 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 17. But we ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning, God has chosen you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm. Hold to the traditions you were taught, whether by what is said or by what we wrote. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal encouragement and good hope by grace, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good work and word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Thank you. Okay. So we are in the middle of a a mini-series that hopes to answer the question, uh, why is our church the way that it is? Um, You know, there are elements of our church that that might remind you of various church traditions. Um, And so our church... Uh, seeks to implement uh, three broad categories that we're calling evangelical, sacramental, and Pentecostal. We talked about the evangelical one last week. We're going to talk about sacramental uh, this week. Now, I grew up, like, when, I, when I started going to, a, to church, I grew up in a tradition, this is ironic, I grew up in a church tradition where the word tradition was a bad word. Uh, people did not, they didn't like, they didn't like tradition. They're like, we got to get something new. We got to feel the newness of the spirit. Now, the irony is we did the same thing every Sunday. Uh, <laughs> so it's, it's irony. And so the, the, the truth of the matter is you actually don't have a choice if you're going to follow tradition or not. You have a choice if you're going to follow a well thought out one or not. People are naturally going to do the same thing over and over again. We're kinda, we kind of, we create habits and we do the same stuff. So the question is not, is one church traditional versus the other one traditional? The question is, what is the source of the tradition? Were, was it thought out? Did it come from a divine source? Or did it just happen to be that way because people started to do something and they just kept doing it that particular way? And so, so what we're going to learn is that, that there are some traditions that have been handed down to us from the scriptures. And if they're handed down to us from the scriptures then we need to make sure that we are obeying and following those. In other words, we stand firm in the gospel by doing the practices that have been handed down to us. We stand firm in the gospel by doing the practices that have been handed down to us. Namely this, when I talk about sacramental, I'll give you a definition. It means that that we take baptism, the Lord's Supper, and other Christian practices handed down to us seriously. That, 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 if, that, if, that if the church has been doing something for, let's say, around 2,000 years, that we'd be really careful not to discard it without a very good reason. Because we believe in a tradition, in a, in a message that has been handed down to us through the ages. And so not only the content of the message has been handed down. There are some very specific practices that have been handed down as well. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to understand 
uh, your word. Help us to structure our church and our lives in such a way that it would give honor and glory to you. Lord, speak to us through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we start off in verse 13 and 14. Paul is just giving thanksgiving for the impact of the gospel on the lives of Christians. And we can give that same thanksgiving. In verse 13, it says, But we ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God has chosen you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love that he begins with thanksgiving. And he's not talking about people he doesn't know. This is a church that he planted, a church with people that he loved dearly. And one of the things I want to say is I just want you to look around you for a second and think about, look, this is the people that God has given us. God has given us one another, and we can give so much glory and thanksgiving to him. When I think about you, when I pray for you through the week, I don't pray for you just as a glob, but I think about specific people. And there are specific people in our church who who just love and serve me and one another so well. And when I think about you, I go, man, God, thank you. Thank you that you involve this person and this family and this individual who has this gift and that gift. They are of a unique encouragement to me and one another. It, it, we need to be careful not to rush through thanksgiving in our prayers. There can be a lot of joy stirred up in your heart when you take pause and just look around you and think, who has God placed around me? And are they not such a gift to me? Y'all, even the folk who get on my nerves sometimes, they don't get on my nerves all the time. <laughs> there are times where I'm like, I still thank for them. Listen, God has given us a great gift in the church, a great gift in being able to, to serve and enjoy and care for one another. When you are looking at a Christian, you are looking at a treasure trove of God's grace, a divine gift in and of itself. And then Paul just starts getting really excited about, about the truths of the gospel. He starts, he said, he said first of all, that, that if, if you are a Christian, that God chose you. That's what he says. If you just read, it says, from the beginning, God has chosen you for salvation. This is a, a, a doctrine that is beautiful, the doctrine of election. It states that God chose whom he would save, and that choice proceeds in a consideration of our faith. Let me, let me, let me make it plain. If you are a Christian, it is not because you have better wisdom than non-Christians. If you are a Christian, it's not because your decision-making abilities are better. You, you are a Christian because God in his grace looked at you and said, you are coming to me. That means that it removes any shred of pride whatsoever. Because it could be really easy, like, well, why doesn't so-and-so believe? Or why won't so-and-so stop that thing? Or why would, they just, why would they just believe the words I'm saying? That is a recipe for pride. But if you go, wait a minute, I'm in not because I'm really cool or because I'm really wise. But God in his grace chose me. This destroys any shred of pride. In Ephesians 1, 4, it says, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless and love before him. Beloved, if you are a Christian, you have to praise God for his electing love. 
I know this about me. I would not have chosen Christ if he had not chosen me. I was not looking for him. I was not considering him. I was considering a lot of options, but he was not at the top. So I praise God for his electing love because he took the first step towards us. He showed his mercy towards us. No, look, look, look. In the Bible, it says that in, in, in biblical times, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he's like, actually, not many of y'all are that smart. You're not that rich. There's not a lot of cool stuff about you. But God, in his grace, said, I'm going to choose you. And that's what we can praise God for. Not only has he chosen us, he has given us faith. That's what it says. It says, it says, God chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. When we look at our catechism that we go through with our kids, there's a question, what is faith in Jesus Christ? He says, faith in Jesus Christ is acknowledging the truth of everything that God has revealed in his word, trusting in him, and also receiving and resting on him alone for salvation. Beloved, again, The reason that we rest in him alone for salvation is not because our reasoning and abilities are so awesome and so much better than those who don't. It's because God in his grace has given us the gift of faith. The spirit of God sets you apart. I remember distinctly there was a time in my life when I didn't have faith. And then there was a time when I did. And I can't get credit for that. It is God's grace. Faith is a gift of God. Not only, not only has he chosen you and given you the gift of faith, but, but he has called you. It says, it says that, that in, in the text, it says, he called you to this through our gospel. What is it talking about that? It, it means that God, the Holy Spirit, gave you the ability and the desire to want to respond to the gospel. God's word reached into the depths of your heart and called you out. Now, 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 there's a difference between a, an effective call and an ineffective call. And we can see this kind of how different kids respond to their parents. Now, sometimes my wife will say something to my children, and they just go about their business like they didn't hear anybody. All right? They're just doing this thing. They heard the word. Now, here's the thing. And sometimes my wife will say, Will, will you go talk to them? Y'all, I'll say the same thing. And they'll be like, oh, I better obey. What's interesting is the content wasn't the same. But the one who made the call was different. Beloved, when God calls you, you respond. That is his power, his majesty, his grace. When God calls you, you respond. And not only this, he says that that he chose you, he gave you faith, he called you, and that, that he says he's going to give you glory. He's going to give you glory in Christ Jesus, meaning this, that when all is said and done, that you will get to dwell with Christ with a, with a perfected body, no sin infecting every crevice, and that there will be no sickness and no death, that we will live with and enjoy God forever in the new heaven and in the new earth, where we will be forever freed from all sin in a renewed, restored creation. Beloved, we'll be made like Christ. And all that is a gift that you receive by faith and believing what the gospel says. So then in verse 15, he gives a command, though. He says, so then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught, whether by what we said 
are by what we wrote. He's saying, beloved, beloved, if you stand firm, if you hold on to the truth of this gospel message, everything I said was yours will continue to be yours. He's saying we have to stand firm in what the apostles taught and what we believe in has been revealed and handed down to us by Scripture. That's what we talked about last week. We must be people of the book. That's why we read, pray, sing, and teach the Scriptures. That is God's revelation to us. But not only are there teachings, there are practices that have been handed down to us as well. We stand firm in the apostles' faith by following the practices that they gave us. Beloved, doctrine was not the only thing they handed down. There were common practices handed down as well. That's why in 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul talks about communion, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. There's a practice that I received, and and I am now giving it to you. And one of the means of you standing firm in the gospel is continuing to practice the things that have been handed down. Or we can look at Acts 2.42. We're like, well, well, we know they taught because we have the letters. Or what did they do? In Acts 2.42, it says, they, the Christians, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So, like, what did they do? Well, they, they, they made it a big deal that we hold teaching the Bible highly. They had spiritual fellowship. And there is a practice and pattern of prayer. And every time the, the writer of Acts uses the word, the phrase breaking of bread, beloved, he's talking about communion. That's what he's talking about. So that not only did they hear a message and believe a message, but they clinged to some practices. This practice of prayer, this practice of spiritual friendship, this practice of regularly celebrating communion. You know, one of the the fancy words for baptism and communion, it's a sacrament, meaning this. It 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 is an act that signifies and points to something greater. That's what it means. It's an act that that is powerful because it points to something greater. The beautiful thing about the two the two sacraments, if you will, baptism and communion, is what they do is they point you to the gospel. Just think about what think about what you do. When someone is getting baptized, what, what does that mean? We're saying that, that, that in that, that, that uh, picture of going down and coming up, that Christ has died for you and that he has rose again. And, and, and in your life that he has made you die to the old ways of sin and rise to walk in the newness of life. What is that other than the gospel? Or, or what, what, what about when we do communion? When, when Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for what? Your forgiveness. The practices in and of themselves actually keep the church gospel-centered. Beloved, if, listen, this is a lot of comfort to me. If I jack up the sermon, all right, let's just say I'm preaching something. I just was not in, in, in the zone and I somehow forgot to get to the gospel. I know that after I preach, we're going to take communion and I know the gospel's there. There's this, there's this book that I read. It's called You Charismatic. It's, it's a lot of books that are kind of calling for these mergings of traditions. But this is what the author says. He says, the sacraments in that sense enact the gospel. We just talked about that. 
It enacts the main message of what we believe. They dramatize, they show our union with Christ in ways that words alone cannot express. Clearly, this can be enormously helpful in discipling all kinds of people. Those from high-context cultures, oral learners, non-literate communities, and so forth. Even in the most bookish societies, it makes a huge difference when the word is not just heard, but also seen, felt, smelled, and tasted. Beloved, one of the reasons that God has given us these, these, these two things that we practice is because he is calling all kinds of people to himself. He's not just calling auditory learners. He's not just calling people who can read well. He's calling everybody. And he has given us these physical, visceral things to do to remember what he has done. So, so again, when, when we think about baptism, it, 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 what the catechism says, it says that, that it's the washing with water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It signifies and seals our adoption into Christ, our cleansing from sin, and our commitment to belong to the Lord and to his church. He's saying baptism is a symbol of the gospel and of our salvation. It is a vivid picture of the fact that Christ died and was raised. And it's the right of entrance into the church. One of the most interesting things is, some of y'all know I was a, I was a missionary in East Asia for a while, and so uh, it was really cool to get to walk with people through the biblical story. Like, like this is a, it was an atheist society, so there was, not, like, there was no concept. You know, we could go out in the street and say something about Jesus, and they kind of have some sort of idea what we're talking about. Okay, that's not it. <laughs> so we're like, in Genesis, so it, what I'm saying is it takes a long time to t- share the gospel because you got to talk about a lot. And so I'm walking with folks through weeks of, of biblical content, and then we get to the point, and they're like, they're, they're like, I believe. And then I say, okay, well, the next step is baptism. And universally, they would go, whoa, I don't know about all that. I said, but you believe, though, don't you? But even they instinctively knew that if I take this step, I am crossing into something. I am signifying that I'm leaving an old life and entering into something new. They instinctually know that it was a big deal. And though I could intellectually agree with it, if I stake my body into it, then then, listen, they're like, listen, people could persecute me. It, It is a sign to everybody that I really and truly not only believe this cognitively, but I want to obey it with everything that I am. They knew it was an entrance. And beloved, every time we see a baptism, it not only signifies that person entering into Christ's kingdom, but it reminds us of how we were. Next time you see a baptism, I want you to rejoice with that person getting baptized, but I also want you to remember, there was a time when you wasn't walking with Jesus. And just as he called that individual, he is called you. So it's this, this right of entrance. And then we have communion. And the catechism says that Christ commanded all Christians to eat bread and to drink from the cup in thankful remembrance of him and his death. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of the presence of God in our midst, bringing us into communion with God and with one another, feeding and nourishing our souls. It also anticipates a day when we'll eat and drink with Christ in his Father's kingdom. I don't know a better way to celebrate the gospel 
than doing it the exact way Jesus told you to do it. <laughs> he said, hey, look, I'm about, like, on the night before he was a train, he's like, look, you want to celebrate this? Let me tell you exactly how to do it. It represents that God wants fellowship with us. See, we instinctually know this. When, when you were young and when you were in school, it said something about who you sat with at the lunch table. It was like, I'm your friend. And you know, you walk into school, it's all, everybody gets all clicked up together. And Jesus says, communion means I want you at my table. You come to me. I, I, don't, I don't put you over there. You're not in some other group. You're in my group. Communion represents our unity in Christ. It's the craziest thing. No matter if you're rich or poor, black, white, you get the same bread. <laughs> there ain't special rich bread and special poor bread. Like, like everybody's on the same playing field. There's one common denominator. And communion anticipates the day of Christ's return. The, the, the day of Christ's return in the scripture is painted as this great banquet, this feast. And every time we take communion, we're reminded we're going to get to feast with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, I'm going to talk about something a little bit different. So we talk about baptism and communion, but I'm going to tell you a little story about how I got more into understanding church tradition. The best way to view tradition is a means of how to obey. Let me explain. There are clear commands in Scripture that are not always clear on how to obey it. So I'll give you one. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 5, it says, first of all, he's talking to a pastor. First of all, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority. And I'm going to be honest. When I read that scripture, thinking about how to structure a church, I'm like, how in the world are you praying for everybody? That's a long list. You know, I'm just being honest. I'm like, I want to obey that, but I don't know how. We're going to have the longest church service ever. It was... Bob and Jim and Nancy and you know like, how we don't pray for everybody he says it I want you to pray for everybody and so I, I'm like how do you do that and then I found this thing called a book of common prayer in fact other Christians had thought about how do we obey this and they developed prayers so that they could obey it beloved the reason that we do that is because it's because I wanted to obey scripture and I didn't know how so I looked in the past I'm like well what did y'all do and I found a great commonality. It don't matter if you're looking at Catholic, Orthodox, Anglican. It don't matter. There is a commonality that they are always praying for everybody. And I thought, well, we can take that. It, what it did is it made it doable to me. Like if I said, before you came to our church, I'm like, hey, man, today I want you to go pray for everybody. You'd be like, oh, <laughs> I, don't got a time, I don't got time to do all that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But, but now you have a framework. And I could tell you to do that. And you're like, actually, I could take what we say. And I could actually do it. That, see, tradition at its best is not tradition just to do, to do a thing. It's tradition in order to obey. It helps answer the question. There is a command in the text. I don't know exactly how to do it. But I could look back and I could see how other Christians did it. And if it looks good and it doesn't contradict scripture, then I can do that. Not only, okay, so, 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 so I look back at the earliest churches and how they sought to obey. Look, you can go to my office. I got like really old service, services from like the 300s. And they're all the same. They're all praying for people in this way. 
that give us a way to obey the scriptures. Or how about this? You know, scripture gives us this, this really, uh, these really uh, intense commands about holding uh, the central doctrine of the gospel. How do I hold it? How do I make sure it's guarded? And in the scripture, we actually see examples of what scholars call proto-creeds. Proto-creeds, the first kind of creed. So in 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul says, And most certainly the mystery of godliness is great. It was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up the glory. Y'all, that's a creed. Or, or, or he says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, For I pass on to you what was most important, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Beloved, that's a creed. You can look at Philippians 2. There's a, it's all throughout the Bible. How can I get these summaries of the most important thing? And so from the, from the biblical times, Christians have always summarized the most important thing. And this is something that's really interesting about the Apostles' Creed. What, what is different, the difference between the Apostles' Creed and any other creed in history is that nobody sat down and made it. There just came a time when they realized they were all doing it. It was all like, you say that too? Me too. You know? <laughs> and then they realized, because what they were doing is they were preparing people for baptism. And they're like, how do I summarize the most important things? And so what the Apostles' Creed comes from, it comes from what they would say when someone was getting baptized. And it didn't come down from no top authority. They just realized, you know, all throughout the Roman Empire, we're kind of saying the same thing. We've all kind of looked at the text of Scripture and said, this is the important stuff. And so I thought about, you know, if I'm going to try to disciple people and try to delineate what is most important, because I know about y'all, but y'all know what happens, one reason heresy happens is because they make a minor thing major. They find some little thing that's like a side note, and they're like, this is the thing we must focus on. And so how do we guard against that? How do we guard that, that we say, what is most important? Well, we have a tool that has been used a long time. And I remember, I remember when I was talking to a lady who, who wasn't really experienced uh, in church, and, and she was asking me, like, why do we say the Apostles' Creed? And I said, we say it because I want you to know what's most important. And her response to me was like, oh, so church isn't all about getting my money. That's what she said. She's like, uh, and I said, is that one of the things? And she's like, no. And I'm like, that's not one of the things that is of utmost importance. And, and we get to verse 16 and 17. We learn that, that uh, Paul is praying for them as they seek to stand firm in that gospel message. He says, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and has given us eternal encouragement and good hope by grace, Encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good work and word. One of the things about when, when, you, when you pray, usually if you really are praying and believe the thing that you're praying for, you cooperate with the prayer. So let me just get, you're like, man, I want a promotion, right? And you're praying for the promotion. Hopefully you're also like doing a good job, right? <laughs> like it'd be weird if you were praying like, I'm just going to do nothing. Like, well, <laughs> don't work like that. You know what I'm saying? If I'm praying that I would have an eternal encouragement and good hope, then I should be doing something that corresponds to that. And what do I do? I do the practices that have been handed down. 
How does my heart get encouraged? And how am I strengthened in every good work? I savor the gospel in every single way that the scripture has given me. Beloved, God gives us encouragement. I don't know about y'all, but listen, listen, it might seem simple to y'all, but when I hear someone declare to me that Christ died and that, that his blood cleanses me of sin, that's encouraging to me. It's encouraging to me. When, when I hear y'all confessing what we believe and the words of the, the creed, I'm like, that, that's encouraging to me. And I remember, it's, it's encouraging in ways you don't know. I remember when I was, I was teaching my children, I tried to teach them, you know, the scriptures, because that's what the Bible says to do. And I was teaching, I wanted to teach them the greatest commandment. I said, you know what Jesus says the greatest commandment is? And Ezra goes, yeah. I'm like, how you know that? He said, we say it every week. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love it every self. I'm like, we do, do we? Don't we? <laughs> like, 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 he can hide God's word in his heart, and that it can strengthen and encourage him because we put it in front of him consistently. The practices of the gospel are meant to equip us for those good works and those good deeds. So what does this mean for our church? It means a couple of things. It means that, that when, when, when someone is getting ready to get baptized, I'm going to tell you what I did. I looked in church history. I'm like, how do they prepare people? Again, I, I ain't the first person to think this question. And it was, it, it was pretty universal. They taught about what do Christians believe? What do they do? And how do we pray? You know what they used to do that? What do we believe? What do we believe? What do you think they use, y'all? What do we say we believe every week? Okay, boom. That's, that's what they did. They're like, here's the important stuff. You know about God the Father, Creator Almighty? You know about Jesus Christ, the only Son of our Lord? He was conceived by the Holy Like They're like, you go through, like, these are the, the central things you get knowledge about who God is, that he is triune, what he has done, that Christ died in your place. And then what, where, where he, he seeks to apply the gifts of the Holy Spirit to you, which is where? The church. So what do we believe? Then, then they said, well, what, what do we do? I'm like, well, what do we do? They use something else, the Ten Commandments. When they did, we went through that uh, earlier this year. They're like, what, what, if you follow Christ, how then do you live? Well, you don't worship other gods. You don't make idols. You don't misuse a name. You honor Christ on the Lord's day. You honor your parents. You love your spouse. I mean, just boom, boom, boom. Then they're like, well, how do we pray? Y'all, there's this prayer that Jesus gave us. We say that all, all the time, too. The Lord's Prayer. What am I supposed to pray? Boom. And, and that's what I've done. So when folks are preparing to get baptized here at the church, that's what I take them through. We walk through it slowly. What do we believe? What do we do? And how do we pray? Now, if I were to ask you those questions without a guide, that would feel daunting, wouldn't it? Go teach that person what Christians believe. Uh, you know? <laughs> so in Genesis 1, you know? <laughs> no, no, but there's a tool to help us do that. What about this? That, that, uh, the question, one of the questions I get the most often is, why do we do communion every week? It's a good question. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, 26, it says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Do y'all want to proclaim the gospel? I, I, okay, I do. <laughs> I want to proclaim the gospel. And one of the ways he says you could do it is by taking communion. 
The, the idea of not taking communion weekly is a very novel thing. It's very, it's just novel. Matter of fact, I'm getting a little dorky today, but it, it is what it is. One of the issues, of, one of the reasons the Reformation happened, that thing in Europe where, you know, the Catholic Church kind of split up, one of the reasons that happened is because they weren't giving people communion. And the Reformers said, that's not right. You can't not give them communion. That's how we proclaim the gospel. That was one of the major reasons that whole thing happened. So we do regular communion, and then, and then we look at, to church tradition with humility. We want to demonstrate deep humility in how we, look to, to how we look to structure our church by gleaning from church history, meaning this. Not that everything they did is awesome, because it's not. But if I can figure out a way to obey the text that does not contradict the text, and has a lot of precedent, why would I not do that? It is, a sta- it is a posture of humility to go, we ain't the first person that ever thought about how to do this thing. So maybe we should pause and look back for a minute. Now that's what it means for the church. What does it mean for you? What this means for you is this, is that spiritual repetition is good. Spiritual repetition is good. Some people are so afraid to do the same things because they say that the reputa- rep- repetition devalues the thing. But you don't think of it like, imagine if I said, I'm not going to preach for two weeks because I don't want y'all to get bored and I don't want y'all to value it. Like, there's certain, like, we're not going to sing any songs for two weeks because I don't want y'all to get too excited. I don't want you to, to, to dull the song out. Like, there's certain things that we do in church that no, we're like, no, we we, not, we, we know that just because we do it every week doesn't mean it loses its value. So, so it's like, that's, that's, that's not applied equally. Oh, we can't do communion every week because then it won't matter. Well, there's a lot of stuff that we do every week. We don't have, we just go have a free-for-all every week, you know? <laughs> no, 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 no. We, we do not think uh, this for things that we do and say over and over again. Like, imagine if, if a husband said to his wife, I don't want to say I love you too much. Okay? I don't want you... I don't want you to make it dull. No, no. Matter of fact, you say it often because you're like, I don't want you to forget. Repetition is good. And here's the thing that I've noticed. I don't know if you noticed this. If you've been around Christians for a while, no matter where they come from, they, if you listen to somebody pray over the course of a couple months, they say the same thing. They do. do, they do. <laughs> you're like, oh, that's, that's his favorite name for God. Here it comes. You know, like, and they got it, like, and they pray for this, that. Like, you just know, like, I can close my eyes and I can listen to somebody pray, and I'm like, I know who that is. So the fact of the matter is, you're going to pray for the same things anyway. So either you're going to do, do it just randomly, or you're going to think about what it is and structure it in such a way that you cover the things that are important. Like I said, people who hate tradition still actually do traditions. What I would encourage you to do is I would encourage you to incorporate liturgy in your daily prayer. And I'm going to tell you how to do it. Because, again, I, I, would, I would just assume, let's say if you're a praying person and you pray every day, I would assume you say the same stuff anyway. <laughs> so why not think carefully about what it is? Why, why, not, why not go, is, is, am I covering what the text says I should cover? It, it, like, like why, not, why not broaden the scope, Right? And so I'm real simple, but I, every day I do this in the morning and the evening. I slowly pray through. Yeah, this, now, this is going to be surprising, right? The Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, 
in the Lord's Prayer. Y'all, I cover a lot of stuff. I mean, that's a broad scope. You end up praying for the world, do you not? You end up evaluating, like, as I'm slowly praying through those things, I'm thinking about, uh, how am I doing? Like, when it says honor your father and mother, I'm like, am I being nice to my parents? Am I being nice to my kids? You know, like, like, if you just slowly go through that stuff, you will find yourself praying and, and, and doing a lot of self-reflection. And the cool thing about it is you do it for a while and you just got to memorize. I don't have to carry a paper with me. That's how I've hidden his word in my heart. So here's a re- the, the encouragement is this. Spiritual repetition is good. You're going to repeat yourself anyway. So why don't you do it in a well-thought-out way? Okay? We stand firm in the gospel by doing the practices that have been handed down to us. That's how we stand firm. It, it encourages my heart when I hear the words, this is my body broken. This is my blood shed. I'm reminded of the gospel. I'm reminded of the kindness of the Lord. I'm reminded of his invitation to anybody. Even though you have sinned, I want to be your friend. And I died for you so that you could be close to me. Beloved, I want to remember that every single way that I can. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your mercy and your kindness. Lord, I pray that uh, we would be a church and be a people uh, who, who discipline ourselves to, uh, to, to be about your word through uh, our teachings and, and what we do. Uh, Lord God, I pray that we would see uh, the practices that have been handed down for us to uh, dramatize and remember the gospel in new light. Lord, how you care so much for us that you have communicated to us in a variety of ways. Lord God, you you care so much for us. Lord God, that you just don't speak words to us. But Lord, you, 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 you let us see your gospel with our eyes. You, you let us taste your gospel. Lord, thank you so much because you have Uh, stooped low to communicate with us and let us be so thankful and receptive of that in jesus name amen